Two weeks ago, we started what I intended to be a three-week series of discussions on God's financial plan. And last week, I just felt compelled that we had to take a detour. Sorry about that. So last week, uh, we talked about politics. Today, we're going to pick back up with God's financial plan, and we're going to do it quickly. We're going to do parts two and three together today, and we're going to do a shortened version even at that. So stay with me. A lot of information, and we're going to run through it quickly. God's financial plan. We framed the whole discussion with a quote from the English revivalist John Wesley, and we'll get to that in a minute, and I'll expand that quote because it really gives us a ground, a founding. It gives us a framework for what God's financial plan is. But I want to begin this morning by reading a fascinating little section from Acts. Acts chapter 20, and Acts is the book that tells about the deeds of the apostles, and this in particular is the apostle Paul. And I especially want you to notice, at the end of this section we're going to read, the apostle Paul quotes Jesus. So I want you to take in the essence of the quote, but realize kind of the double emphasis here. Not only recognize the quote, but the apostle Paul is telling his hearers, I want you to remember what Jesus said. So it's a kind of double underscore for this truth. And if you would, let's go old school, stand out of reverence for God's word, and we're going to read Acts 20. If you have a Bible, I'm going to start reading in verse 32 of Acts 20. This is one of the books at the back of the New Testament, so go north. If you have it on your phone, just dial in Acts chapter 20. Verse 32, it's on the screen. Now, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified, all those who are being made more and more like God. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. He talked about this in the passage that we went over two weeks ago. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, and he gives this to inspire us. Remembering Jesus' words, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So, Father, I pray today that you will, for some of us, honestly, God, the prayer is that you'll break the chains of the misguided suburban American formula. And you will, I mean, Susan talked about it, God. We want to look good. And I, I, all that goes with that, and, and some of that is the accoutrements of our finances. I pray and said, God, that today we would land full in with your financial plan for us, that we would embrace it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so two weeks ago, we started with work, with our jobs, with our career, and we said a couple of really important things that I want to review. Number one, we said our work is essential, and by essential, we said that we mean it's both critically important. Our work is critically important. It's not just a burden, not just a throwaway thing. Our work is critically important, and that it's a fundamental part of what it means to be a Christ follower. It's to work. The second thing we said is that our work, our jobs, facilitate our ministry. We said it does so in three ways. Number one, it allows us to contribute and not to be a burden to anyone. Secondly, it allows us to be a model to others. 
And thirdly, it allows us to be generous. Let me add one more thing before we scoot on to the next part of God's financial plan. The biblical model for work can be summarized in two words. So underscore these, hard work and diligence. So before we leave the topic of work, let me give three enemies of work which the Bible identifies. Three enemies of our work, of your jobs, which the Bible identifies. The first enemy is sloth. Proverbs 20.13 says, Do not love sleep or you will grow poor. Stay awake and you will have food to spare. Proverbs 10.4 says, Lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. In other words, for this, you and I need to examine our life habits because sloth is an enemy of our jobs. The second enemy is mere talk. Proverbs 14.23 says, All hard work brings profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. And this would cause you and I to examine our planning habits. And a third enemy of your job, which the Bible enumerates for us, is fantasy chasing. Proverbs 28.19 says, He who works with his land will have his fill of food, but the one who chases fantasies will have his fill of poverty. And this should cause, this should be sobering, this should cause you and I to examine our thought life, especially as it relates to how we work and what we do. Now, I talked a minute ago about the suburban American formula and God's financial plan, almost God's financial formula. We quoted John Wesley, as I said two weeks ago. We said, Wesley said this, and it, it tees us off to God's financial plan, I think. Wesley said, make as much as you can, save as much as you can, give as much as you can. Now, rarely do you get a formula in life, but this morning we're going to come as close as we ever get to giving a formula for how life works. If we tweak what Wesley said just a little bit, I think we get very close to God's financial plan for you and me. And it's this, and if you miss everything else, don't miss this. The rest of today is going to be teeing off on God's financial plan. Make all you can so that you can save all you can, so that you can give all you can, so that you can be happy so that you can glorify God. All right, let's begin at the end. We're going to jump back to the beginning and then land in the middle. And we're just going to unpack this little God's financial formula here. Let's begin at the end. God is glorified when we find our satisfaction and our joy in him. Be as happy as you can so that God will be glorified. What do you mean, Ed, that God is glorified when we're happy we find our happiness in him. I want you to imagine Diane comes home from work one day. Diane's a secretary at a local elementary school. She walks in, and she's excited. She opens the door. She's thrilled to see her dashing, handsome husband. And I say to Diane, I say, hi, I've made dinner. I know you work really hard, and you cook most of the time, so I've made you something to eat. Now I want you to imagine Diane walks in the house and I say, Hi, I made you dinner. I know you've worked really hard and I know you do most of the cooking and I just wanted to make you dinner. Which one honors her more? It's the same with God. Oh, let's go to church. Kids, get out of bed. It's time to go to church. 
Is that more honoring or Psalm 122? I was glad when they said to me, let's go into the house of the Lord. Over and over again, the Bible tells us, rejoice in the Lord. This is not some duty. God is glorified when we're happy. Let's move back a step in the formula. One of the keys to happiness, maybe the primary key to happiness, but certainly one of the keys to happiness is giving all we can. He pauses for dramatic effect, thinking they might be overwhelmed and would say amen. Wow, that was pitiful. One of the keys to happiness, maybe the primary key to happiness, is giving all we can. Even if they didn't mean it, they said it. Remember the text. Remember the text? Jesus told us it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's a better place to be. It's moving in the direction of happiness more so to give than to receive. This is exactly where we usually get the formula wrong. We know it well. We rehearse it almost daily. The American suburban formula, make all I can so I can spend all I can so I will be happy. But look, we know from experience that this is wrong. If this were right, there would be a one-to-one correspondence between more and more money and more and more happiness. But you and I know too many examples of that being, not only is that wrong, sometimes it's the inverse, isn't it? We know from research that this is wrong. You know, there's been an explosion among social scientists and even economists over the last 15 years in particular in studies of happiness. They're doing it everywhere now. They have happiness studies that measure countries and how how happy countries are and what makes individuals happy. They have done extensive studies on happiness ratios among people whose finances changed dramatically. They've studied a variety of circumstances. They've poked at that in different ways. One of the most famous studies of this is a study, I think, done by University of California Davis, I think, one of those research universities, did a study on lottery winners and their level of satisfaction and happiness with their lives, and they found that dramatic change in the financial status of a family or a couple. It makes an actual, real-life, on-the-ground, day-by-day difference in their level of satisfaction for almost, weirdly, exactly six months. Repeatedly. And then there's a precipitous fall-off, and they return, guess what, to the exact same level of satisfaction and happiness that they had before they won the lottery and sometimes worse. We know from research that this doesn't work. Most importantly, we know from Scripture that this is wrong. I've got way too many verses to go over, so let's just stick with Jesus' words, all right? It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Plus, this is not the kind of heart that the American suburban formula, that's not the kind of heart that God honors. James 4, 3 says this, when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you can spend what you get on your pleasures. And I'm just not going to honor a heart like that. The problem with this formula, so get the formula, you know it well, but let's make sure we've got this in our heads. The problem with the formula is not, is not that we want to make more money. Two weeks ago, I said the Proverbs almost 
tells us to make a plan to make more money. God's formula, make more. That's where it begins. The problem is not that we want to make more money. The problem with this formula is not that we want to be happy. The problem is with the assumptions of the formula. Really, where our happiness comes from. If I can, I want to read a C.S. Lewis quote. I've read part of this before, but I'm going to read the whole thing this morning. This is awesome. C.S. Lewis commenting, writing, you know, in the late 50s, early 60s, writing about the American suburban formula. Lewis says this, If you ask 20 good men today what they thought the highest of the virtues, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. I think today, 19 of the 20 would say tolerance. But if you asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied, love. You see what's happened? A negative term has been substituted for positive, and this is of, of more than philosophical importance. The negative ideal of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion, not primarily of securing the good things for others, but of going without them ourselves. As if our abstinence and not their happiness was the important point. I do not think this is the Christian virtue of love. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and take up our cross in order that we may follow Christ, and nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do so, contains an appeal to our desires. If there lurks in modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for happiness and the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is being offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. The formula, rightly configured, is make all you can so that you can save all you can so that you can give all you can so that you'll be as happy as you can so that God will be glorified. Look, God wants to bless us. Psalm 115, 12 and 13 and a thousand other places. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. This is why God's desire to bless us is why a part of the formula involves saving all we can. So let's move to the that section of the formula. Saving is a mechanism that helps secure our future. This is a way of blessing us. There are too many biblical examples to tell of savings as a mechanism for securing our future, but maybe the most poignant one, some of you will remember the story of Joseph, and God used Joseph to execute a savings plan for an entire nation that ended up securing that nation in a very difficult time and securing the future of his own estranged family. And that savings plan required stringent discipline and execution regimen, and they pulled it off. 
The wisdom of savings can also be applied to the activity of passing something off to our children, or our children's children, our forebears. This kind of activity, believe it or not, is affirmed in the Bible. In Proverbs 13, 22, Solomon said this, a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. Some have believed this is dishonoring to God. Didn't Jesus, after all, say, why should we worry? Why should we store away in barns? And Jesus did say that, but that isn't a teaching against wise saving. This is a teaching against worry and the desire to control our lives. It's true that the Christian life is a life of denying self, as Lewis noted. But this is about worrying about tomorrow. This is not about denying myself for the sake of abstinence. The real battleground here is not the activity or saving or not saving. The real battleground is trusting God versus trusting myself to control my own circumstances. If I'm trusting God, then I should save all I can so that I can ultimately give all I can. If I'm trusting to secure my own future, trusting in my own abilities, then Proverbs makes it clear and Jesus reminds us this is a fool's errand. The bells are able to save, Javen tells us, because they're cheap. I might substitute that word and say they're wise. I'd put it another way. They know where their treasure is. And their children, if you know their children, they're incredible. Their children have been well provided for. They've had wonderful life experiences. They've had all their basic needs met. They're going to go to the college of their choice. They will be launched into life with nearly every possible advantage. They may not have always had the most expensive styles, and they are not the worst for it. This has enabled the bells to save, which has enabled their capacity to give, and they have. I met this week with Solon Blasto. Solon isn't in here this morning, I don't think, but Kimberly, raise your hand. This is his wife, Kimberly. Better half. You're welcome, Kimberly. Solon is a financial planner, manages finances at a company down in Tyson's, and he works for a company that manages the finances of very high-dollar clients. So I wanted to talk to Solon about this business of saving, and it was really interesting to me. I mean, I guess Solon knew who he was talking to, so he dumbed this down quite a bit. And what he said repeatedly, repeatedly, was, you know, it's a matter of being, he used this word about six times, it's a matter of being intentional. You have to plan well. Almost a quote of Solon, no matter what level of expertise or knowledge you have, just take the next step in being intentional. Solon reminded me it begins with getting rid of debt. Some of you have gone through the Dave Ramsey course that the Salis have led for us a number of times. We will offer it again in the future. It's excellent. If you have not, I encourage you to do so. Ramsey talks very, very practically about getting rid of debt. So I looked at Solon and I said, let's be honest, Solon. How? I mean, some of us come to the end of the month and we barely have enough to make the end of the month meet the finances of the end of the month. And Solon said, well, do whatever you have to. Sell some stuff. Put some stuff on eBay and sell some stuff. And begin with your most manageable debt. Don't begin with the one with the highest interest. It's too discouraging. Begin with the smallest one and the most manageable one and just start to knock it down. Get rid of debt. Whatever level you're at, just get a little more intentional. Solon said to me personally, try listening to some podcasts. He offered up Dave Ramsey and Susie Ormond, some of you know those names, as people who are 
really practical, they're funny, they're accessible, and they offer advice to idiots like me. There's also a guy named Rick Edelman. Solon says he listens to himself, for those of you who have more complicated knowledge base in this area. He then encouraged as you move through your own knowledge base and your own skill, make sure that you're using one of the online tools to track your finances, Quicken or Mint, and there are others. Even those of you who have pretty sophisticated understanding of this stuff, and some of you do, I said, Solon, what about those few folks in our congregation who they know a lot? Solon said, just continue to grow in your knowledge and intentionality. Solon said, almost every time I meet with a new client, they come in with really high finances, but they're not maximizing their assets because they're just not paying enough attention to it. So even folks who have a really sophisticated understanding of this, take the next step in your own planning and knowledge. Make all you can so that you can save all you can. And the final piece to consider in our formula is giving all we can. Make all you can so that you can save all you can so that you can give all you can. I just want to say two things about this and then let's quit. Our God is a generous God. If we're being made like him, we will be generous. Let me say that again. If we are being made like him, we will be generous. If you are lacking in generosity, then you do not have a generosity problem. You have a connection problem. You have an obedience problem. You have a love problem. Because if you have a thriving connection with God, if you love God, you will be growing in generosity. You will be giving more and more to God's causes. That's how it works. Second major point. First, our God's a generous God. Second major point, when we do not give generously to God's causes, God considers that robbery. Not my word, but his. Look at Malachi 3. How are we robbing you, God? Well, you're not giving to my causes. You're not bringing your tithes and your offerings and to my causes. Some of you know the word tithe literally means tenth, and that was the Old Testament standard for the start. That was the starting point. Now, the New Testament didn't overturn that standard. What Jesus taught was essentially, sure, give a tenth, awesome, but really your whole life belongs to God. You're just a steward over his stuff. If you're not giving generously to God's causes, God considers that robbery. Make all you can so that you can spend all you can so that you can be happy. The misguided American suburban formula. Let's reject this thinking and this brand of living. This is what fuels the suburbs. Let's reject it. After all, it's God who gives us not only the ability to accumulate wealth, but he gives us the ability to enjoy it as well. Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18 says, You may say to yourselves, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it's he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. Ecclesiastes 5, 19 and 20 goes even further. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Let's build our lives on something other than the American suburban motto. Let's build our lives on God's financial plan.
Make all you can so that you can save all you can, so that you can give all you can, so that you can be as happy as you can, so that you can glorify God. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. And they said it enthusiastically. Let me end. I'm going to try to be real quick. We are, in a minute, going to celebrate this meal, which is a testimony to God's generosity. But I wanted to tell you guys real quickly, I did not plan this series of messages for our particular gateway need, but the timing is great. I promise you I did not plan this so that I could make an appeal, but I'm going to make a quick appeal to you. Uh, If you're visiting with us, thanks so much for coming. If this is your second or third week, we are building a facility almost across the street from us here, and it's going to be a really gorgeous first home. Uh, God has blessed us with an incredibly key, important piece of property. Ask me that story later. That's not religious speak. God gave it to us. I tried to say no to it twice, and it was incredibly low-priced and amazing So we have this unbelievable opportunity that he's made us a steward over the way this has worked so far. Sorry for the detail, but we pledged some money and we began to collect that money and we got to a certain point and then a bank said, awesome, we'll take that and the collateral of the land itself and how awesome your congregation is and how dashing your pastor is and we'll add all of that together plus the incredible business plan that you have put together for children's activities across the street, and we will give you a loan that will finish off that building. Great. So the rest of the money that you collect, that's all on, that's great, that's good for you. So they didn't count any of the rest of the money that we collected toward the collateral for that loan. They stopped at that point, and that was last spring. But what they did do is they said, you know, all of those things that depreciate, that aren't really part of the building, that nickel is still on you. So we've kind of added all of those nickels up, and we've sort of gotten a pretty good idea of what those nickels are, and it's a lot of nickels. We're going to start up a children's program that's going to be a dynamic offering to our community that will give us an opportunity to serve maybe hundreds of families in our area. We're also going to open up a building and we're going to worship in a gymnasium, and we don't want to walk in the gymnasium and have the gymnasium sound like a gymnasium when we gather on Sunday morning, because I don't know if you've ever been in a gymnasium and just tried to set up speakers in a gymnasium, but you can't really hear anything that's happening. And we've got to provide furniture, unless you guys want to bring soccer chairs every Sunday morning and desks for our children when they meet in the back. And we've got to do landscaping, and we've got to put security on the building. We'll have children there. We need doors, sophisticated locks, and we need cameras, and we need a way to monitor that. So to pay for all of that is going to cost us in the neighborhood of a million dollars. That's between now and next August. So over the last, well, as long as Diane and I have been here, so that was, I think it feels like 1870, but this has been an extraordinarily generous and giving congregation. Thank you. So I'm going to ask you for the next 10 months to dig deeper. Not first in giving, I want you to dig deeper in prayer. We cannot of our own means, and Gateway literally over the last two or three years has been more generous than any church I know of. I'm sure we're not the most generous church around, but you've been extraordinarily generous. Thank you. This is a giving congregation. Thank you. Diane and I eat. I cook that dinner for her resentfully because of what you do. (laughs) Thank you. 
So I don't think that we can fully meet this need, but I think God can. But God's not going to do it unless we give. He always asks us to participate. He doesn't come in and change your life. He's a gentleman. He waits for you to say yes. He waits for you to believe. And the same is true for giving. God asks us to participate, and then he multiplies. A little boy gave his entire lunch, and then Jesus multiplied it for the whole crowd. But it begins with us giving. So I want to speak, first of all, to those of you who have signed up to be part of our giving campaign. Don't miss this, we called it, because we believe God is up to something incredible, and we didn't want anybody to miss it. So don't miss it. Don't miss this. Those of you who have not had an opportunity to sign up with us, you don't need to sign up for anything. We would just love for you to start giving. I'm going to go further. We need for you to start giving. So if you're going to connect the gateway, please consider this the most sincere possible, strongest possible invitation for you to join us and participate in this. Then I want you to pray. I want you to pray for really, really, really extraordinarily rich people, Bill Gates, to come here one Sunday and to say the Gates Foundation needs to give to Gateway Community Church. Seriously, we need to pray. Here's the thing. God's work done God's way will not lack God's supply. But we believe that God wants us to be in that building and to put our best foot forward for this community. We don't believe he wants us to come up short. So let's pray for God's supply because we're going to do God's work and we're going to do it God's way. Let's pray for God's supply. Amen? Here's the thing. There are ways that we can trim that $1 million. They're not fun ways. That's not Ed speak. There are sacrificial ways. But there are ways that we can trim that $1 million. But I don't want to begin there. Because when we open that building, I want to put our best foot forward for this community. I don't want to start with trimming. And, and by the way, we're not going to get to this because of our cleverly engineered plans. We're going to get to this because God inspires us to give, and then he multiplies that gift. So God has been extraordinarily generous to us. This is evidenced here. And I'm going to invite us this morning to participate in a meal of mercy, his meal, his offer to us. So we need to prepare our hearts for this first. So before we do, or as we do, I want you to stand with me. Okay, so let's take our hearts to him. Let's especially take to him the enemies of our work. Let's examine our life habits, sloth. And let's examine our planning habits, our chasing fantasies. And let's examine the degree to which our life is really just about mere talk, and it's not about getting it done. It's not about execution. Let's lay ourselves before him. And in particular... Let's lay our larger habits before him. Let's lay our heart before him. Let's confess corporately, and then we'll take a moment of silence and go to him. Let's say this together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. 
For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that when we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we receive that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's affirm our faith together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And all God's people said, you may be seated. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. So we're going to pass these down the rows. Take those and begin to pass. And as you do so, I want you to turn to the person next to you and be a priest to them. I want you to say, the body of Christ broken for you. And remember, let's don't say the body of Christ broken for you. I want you to say the body of Christ broken for you. Okay, choir, let's sing this together. To the cross. To the cross I look. To the cross I cling. Of its suffering I do drink. Of its work I do sing. For on it my Savior both bruised and crushed showed that God is love and God is just. A gift from the God who gave his only son that we might be saved and have life everlasting. Body of Christ, take it and eat. At the same meal, he took the cup. And he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. So you'll turn to the person next to you and you'll say, the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful. Thankful for your sacrifice. Thankful for your gift. <laughs> Give us generous hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, choir. Let's sing this chorus together of this song, Sweetly Broken. At the cross you beckon me, you draw me gently to my knees and I lost a love so lost in love I'm Very good choir, let's do that again. At the cross you beckon me you 
Draw me gently to my knees and I am lost for words so lost in love I sweetly broken holy Second verse. What a priceless gift. Undeserved life. Jesus shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Take it and drink. Let's pray. Lord, I was glad when they said to me, let's go into the house of the Lord. We rejoice in you. And Father, today we uh, recommit ourselves to your financial plan, making all we can so that we can save all we can, so that we can give all we can so that we can be happy, so that we can glorify you. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.